Well, today we celebrate the birth of our country. So let's return to the question that we began addressing last week. How do we live as citizens in an earthly kingdom while our ultimate citizenship is in the kingdom of heaven, in the new Jerusalem, in the new earth? I do want to spend some time today talking about the history of our country and how it came to be and how the church responded to the revolution of 1776. A 17th century trickle of immigrants landing in Jamestown in 1607 and Plymouth in 1620 turned into a flood of immigrants in the 18th century. In 1715, the colonial population of America was approximately 350,000. 1715. By 1775, the population had swelled to about 3 million. The population boom moved the colonies increasingly toward political and social self-sufficiency. English-speaking clergy were largely American-educated, Secondary schools had made colonists the most literate people in the world. More than 40 newspapers circulated through the colonies. The Great Awakening from 1734 through the early 1740s gave colonists for the first time a sense of national unity. The Great Awakening was, in fact, the first event that was experienced by people living in all 13 colonies. And the awakening actually awakened millennial hopes of America as a chosen nation. Jonathan Edwards and many of his day were post-millennialist. They believed that a massive movement of God's Spirit would transform the nations before the second advent of Christ. And America might indeed lead the way if she could achieve that dream of being a Puritan city on a hill a beacon of light for all the nations to follow. But the awakening was not the only movement to shape the early history of our nation. The Enlightenment ran concurrently with the awakening and produced a spirit of rationalism and anti-supernaturalism that also ran through the colonies. The Enlightenment eroded confidence in the authority of God's Word. Philosophy replaced theology as the medium through which to study the principles of science, law, government, and religion. And deism replaced the theism, the Christian theism of the the awakening. And what is deism? Well, deism is a minimalistic religion that was conditioned by our Christian heritage in the West, but also rejected core doctrines of Christianity, including the inspiration of the Bible, the deity of Jesus Christ, and the bodily resurrection of Jesus in particular, and of course, the second coming. Ethan Allen was not just the founder of a furniture store. In fact, he didn't found a furniture store. He was the hero of Fort Ticonderoga. He was an outspoken deist. His work, Reason, the only oracle of man, avowed natural religion and attacked the priestcraft of the Bible. 
The eloquent pamphleteer Thomas Paine, perhaps the most popular and influential voice calling for revolution, was in fact a deist. His age of reason was an exposition of deism. Elihu Palmer believed deism should be institutionalized as a formal religion and organize the deistical society of New York. And such thinkers exercise real influence on many of America's founding fathers, including George Washington, James Madison, Benjamin Franklin, and especially Thomas Jefferson. Now, given the influence of both the Great Awakening and the Enlightenment, and I'm oversimplifying, was America founded as a Christian nation or a deist nation? Scholars really debate this. And this, frankly, is the question that Christian nationalism, which I addressed last week, fails to address. This confusion between deism and Christianity is what makes vocal historians like David Barton so incredibly dangerous. Was America founded as a Christian nation or a deist nation? I'm reminded of an incident in the life of Carnides, who I mentioned last summer to you. He was an ancient skeptic philosopher who lived in Athens. He rose to the leadership of Plato's academy, and he was later sent as an ambassador to Rome. And there he delivered two lectures on the nature of Roman justice. On the first day, he argued that Romans were the most just people in the history of the world, only to return the following day and argue the Romans were the most unjust people in the history of the world. Well, good arguments could support both propositions. The Romans emphasized ethics, natural law, and political jurisprudence. My students read Cicero to this very day with profit. The Romans were also brutal conquerors and forged an empire on the anvil of war. They enslaved millions of people and indulged in spectacles of murders in their wicked gladiatorial games. So were they just or unjust? Well, I wonder what Carnides would do with the question, was America founded as a Christian nation? Could you, in fact, adduce evidence for the fact that yes, we were, or for the fact that no, we weren't? In his book, Nature's God, Matthew Stewart writes, Many historians take for granted that the reference in the preamble of the Declaration of Independence to, quote, the laws of nature and nature's God amounts to a gesture of conventional piety. Religious conservatives today routinely celebrate it as as proof that America was founded as a Christian nation. But then he continues, yet nature's God properly belonged to the radical philosophical religion of deism. It refers to nothing that we commonly mean by the term God, but rather to something closer to nature. So that raises a very interesting question. How do you distinguish between an evangelical and a deist? The very simple answer to that question is this. Who is Jesus? When you embrace God without embracing the divinity, the atonement, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are a deist. In God we trust will not do. 
you must also trust in God's Son, Jesus, if you are a Christian. Thomas Jefferson removed references to Jesus' deity and the resurrection from his Bible. He was no Christian, despite David Barton's efforts to make him into one. So what really happened in the American Revolution? It is rather complex, and I want to just embrace this complexity today, ultimately with a view to helping us become better citizens of our beloved country. Some Christians have an idyllic view of colonial churches collectively taking up arms and just throwing off the anti-Christian government of England to go out and found a Christian nation. But reality, as you might have guessed, is far more complex. As far as Christianity goes, it's really difficult to say whether England or America had a greater per capita Christian population in 1776, Christian population in 1776. Remember, England also had recently experienced the Great Awakening. John Wesley, George Whitfield had seen a Great Awakening over in England. And many Christians at the time of the Awakening, at the time of the Revolution rather, really struggled with the application of Romans 13. Some ministers promptly returned to Europe and simply refused to join the Revolution. Others were drawn into the chaplaincy. In doing so, they left their churches abandoned. And some ministers participated in the actual combat. They would preach a sermon and go get their hunting rifle and go to war. Church membership actually declined both during and after the war. Colleges, many of which had been founded to train preachers, were shuttered. Their dormitories were used for military purposes. Their faculties were dispersed. And this led to a shortage of ministers in the years following the war. You really don't see a recovery until you get the Second Great Awakening. After the war, the political distractions surrounding the formulation of a new government kept Christians preoccupied more with the affairs of the nation than the church. And social unrest in the form of popular rebellions, like Daniel Shea's rebellion, often disrupted the church. And this situation actually called for a second great awakening. And the Lord graciously sent our country a second awakening. But the Revolutionary War was actually fought during a spiritually dark time in American history between the first and the second awakening. Again, the first awakening ran from approximately 1734 to roughly 1745. The second awakening began around 1790, it began in the colleges, and ran until the early 1840s, if you can believe it. In other words, 1776 fell in the middle, at the nadir, between the two awakenings. And churches during this period, during the war years, fared differently. The Anglican Church suffered a devastating blow because of its association with the English crown. Methodism likewise suffered. John Wesley was fiercely opposed to the revolution on the basis of Romans 13. And most of his preachers simply went back to England with the exception of Francis Asbury, who went into virtual exile during the war years. And after the war, he actually was used mightily to recover the fortunes of the Methodist Church. 
Presbyterianism weathered the revolution fairly well and began to experience slow and steady growth thereafter. And it was really aided by the increased immigration of the Scots-Irish who were coming over. Baptists likewise weathered the revolution. Baptist polity was rather compatible with the spirit of democracy that swept the colonies. And like the Methodists, Baptists grew exponentially during the Second Great Awakening. Also, denominations that were not associated with the English nation weathered the war fairly easily. For example, the Dutch Reformed or the German Lutherans had little difficulty moving to the war years because they didn't have the strong association with the English crown anyway. In other words, the revolution doesn't fit into these nice, tidy little categories as the Christian nationalists would have us to believe. Few, if any, Christians in 1776 viewed themselves as launching a new Christian nation by gunning down the British. You simply don't find that in the sources. Nevertheless, Christianity grew rapidly in the new country, especially during that second awakening. And that rapid growth has led many to assume the country was actually founded as a Christian nation. I mean, here's the founding, and then boom, this great awakening. But again, I want us to be careful to embrace the complexity so that we really do become responsible citizens. Thomas Kidd, who I mentioned last week, is one of the better evangelical American church history scholars working today. I'm jealous because Dr. Don actually knows him, and we have a mutual admiration for Kidd's work. Well, Kidd, in my estimation, does a masterful job of working through the complexity. Uh, read, read Kidd, don't read Barton. All right, Kidd's book, uh, God of Liberty, A Religious History of the American Revolution, I think, in my opinion, is one of the best sources that you can read on the American Revolution. And Kidd identifies five areas of agreement between deists and evangelicals that were evident at the time America was founded. And at the expense of turning this into a history lecture, all right, I do want to work through all five because they really do speak to the complexity of America's birth. Five areas of agreement between deists and evangelicals. Number one, Deists and evangelicals believed in the disestablishment of churches. In other words, no state church. Deists like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison and evangelicals like the famous Baptist preacher John Leland, who knew Madison, agreed there should be no state church in America. Here's why. For Jefferson, he didn't want the church controlling the state. He was no friend of Christianity, of course. Likewise, Leland did not want the state controlling the church. And so they agreed. We can have no state church. Let's just leave the two separate, which I think was a great idea, by the way. Number two, deists and evangelicals agreed a creator God guarantees fundamental human rights. For the deists, political liberty was granted by God, not the monarch. 
All men are created equal, Jefferson declared. And they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, which I happen to agree with. Now, even though evangelicals differ with Jefferson over their belief in the deity of Jesus, they really did wholeheartedly agree with Jefferson on this point. In fact, many, though certainly not all, many Christians just took this truth and pushed it much further than the founding fathers. Many Christians insisted on the immediate and the complete abolishment of all slavery. They said, look, if all men are created equal, then you must end slavery immediately. The Second Great Awakening actually produced numerous Christian reformers calling for an end to black slavery and Indian genocide. Now, unfortunately, the influence of slaveholders like George Washington and James Madison and Thomas Jefferson prevailed. And in fact, the twin evils of slavery and genocide led to another century of war, of Indian wars and a great civil war. But there was agreement that, in fact, all men are created equal. Now, how that was applied looked very different depending on your view of slavery. Number three, deists and evangelicals recognize human sinfulness. Deists do believe that humans are sinners. And consequently, they saw centralized government power as dangerous. Preachers of the First Great Awakening were generally Calvinists. They were Calvinists in their understanding of the total depravity of mankind. And their theology would profoundly affect colonial America. Now, the Founding Fathers typically did not share the Calvinist doctrine of original sin and total depravity. Nevertheless, as James Madison put it in Federalist Paper 51, men were not angels. So both evangelicals and the politicians came to believe that a separation of government powers is necessary to preserve our liberties. And I agree with both. Fourth, both deists and evangelicals insisted a republic needs to be preserved by virtue. You need good citizens. Hardly a virtuous man himself, Benjamin Franklin insisted on the need for civic virtue. If political sovereignty is given to the people, then those people must be virtuous, law-abiding citizens. Franklin really did understand this truth, but so too did all the Christians. The Second Awakening gave rise to numerous institutions which actually promoted ecclesiastical and civil piety. Institutions, Christian institutions that labored for the betterment of society. Number five, both deists and evangelicals believed that God's providence worked in and through nations. There was a new sense of optimism that permeated America in the aftermath of the revolution. Against all odds, the revolutionary cause had won. Well, perhaps God was raising up America for some great special purpose in the world. Perhaps America really could become a city on a hill. But as I mentioned last week, there was really no consensus, and is to this day, no, there is to this day no consensus on what exactly a city on a hill is. 
Is that a land full of churches from sea to shining sea? That was the Puritan vision. One great country full of churches and believers. Is that a land full of lush farmlands and sprawling plantations? That's how Jefferson saw it. Is it a land full of wealth and prosperity built by capitalism? Is it a land fortified by an impregnable military? What exactly is a city in a hill? What exactly is a Christian nation? Now, these five points demonstrate that America's Christian heritage is really quite complex. Again, we're dealing with three million people. That's what makes it so complex. If we were dealing with two people, it would be a lot easier. Three million people. Now, these five truths guaranteed two other truths. Number one, religious freedom. And number two, the separation of church and state. Those truths are just built into the fabric and structure of our country. And I actually am a staunch supporter of both. Religious freedom and separation of church and state. Now, it's easy to gloss over the fact, though, that these freedoms were not evenly applied. America's black population would not enjoy anything resembling religious freedom for an astonishing 200 years. As late as the 1960s, even many churches were resistant to the idea of integration. And in 1776, the long war with the Native Americans, which had begun with the Puritans and the Pilgrims, a century earlier, was far from over. More than a century of bloody wars was required to build America to its present size. These included the Cherokee Wars, Northwest Indian War, Tecumseh's War, Creek War, Seminole War, Texas Indian Wars, Black Hawk War, Texas Revolution, Mexican-American War, Apache Wars, Navajo Wars, Paiute War, Dakota War, Red Cloud War, Comanche War, Sioux War, Nez Pierce War, and Cheyenne War, among many, many others. It wasn't like everything was said and done in 1776. In 1776, you had 13 colonies. You didn't have 50 states as you have them today. There was a lot of war still to come. And by the way, the Bill of Rights in 1776 was not there. It took a long time to bring the Bill of Rights to its present size. So with all that in mind, let's return to our question, was America founded as a Christian nation? It's a question I wrestle with every year in my graduate church history class when we work through American church history. And this is what we can say. We can indeed celebrate America's freedoms, her democracy, her generosity, her pioneer spirit, her Christian heritage, and her world benevolence. We can celebrate her great awakenings, her missionary enterprise, her Christian schools and publishing houses, and tens of thousands of American pulpits aflame with the gospel through the centuries. And if that's all that you emphasize, together with the positive influences of the founding fathers, well, you might make a case that America was founded as a Christian nation. But as Christians, we also have to lament America's terrible legacy of slavery, the destruction of Native American culture and peoples, the willful abortion of our children, which didn't begin with Roe v. Wade. It goes all the way back to the beginning of our country. We have to lament the global export of violence and pornography in the name of entertainment. 
Many, many Islamic countries hate America today because of all the pornography that comes from America. When we examine our founding documents also, for the name that is above every name, Jesus Christ, who was enthroned as ruler of all nations at the resurrection, friends, do we find him? Do we find the name Jesus Christ in our documents? Here's how I embrace the complexity. I don't want to speak for Dr. Don, but we had a conversation about this a while ago, and I think he and I are on the same page. But America was founded with a profound Christian influence. But it goes too far to say that America was founded as a Christian nation. We'll look at Dr. Am I okay, Dr. Don? <laughs> I think so. Okay. Very good. That's a, that's a, that's a well-appreciated yes. All right with a profound Christian influence. But I think it goes too far to say America was founded as a Christian nation. Frankly, is there any such thing as a Christian nation in the church age? Friends, let's look at every verse in the New Testament that tells us how to go out and build a Christian nation. Are you ready? Okay, we're done. Well, let's turn again to Matthew 5 where we left off last week, and let's really try to achieve some real balance in our thinking. We want some real balance in our thinking about this. Matthew chapter 5. Beginning with the Puritan governor, John Winthrop, politicians including John Kennedy, Ronald Reagan, and Barack Obama have referred to America as a city on a hill. But none of them actually used the phrase in the context in which Jesus used it. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 14, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Friends, Jesus was speaking of his disciples shining the way to God the Father in heaven. That's the context. He was speaking of our individual light shining before our fellow man to point them toward a full restoration with their creator. In the same sermon, Matthew 6 and verse 19, look at the text, Jesus told us to live with a heavenly perspective. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now friends, I believe in capitalism, the original Adam Smith version. But the Sermon on the Mount was not designed as a manifesto on American capitalism teaching us how to build a wealthy, prosperous nation. That really was not Jesus' focus. His focus is on his own kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. That's where Jesus' mind is. Now, in verse 33, Jesus gave us his priorities. Seek first the kingdom of God. That's where Jesus' mind goes. And if you'll turn to Matthew 24 and then Matthew 28 you will discover that Jesus' mind really runs 180 degrees opposite from the direction of the notion of Christian nationalism. And I'll come to Matthew 24 momentarily. 
Now let me again return to the idea of Christian nationalism, which I began discussing last week. Christian nationalism often views America as a kind of new Israel. Whereas Israel was the object of God's special attention and affection in the Old Testament, clearly there was one nation that he singled out in the Old Testament, well, America now occupies that privileged position. But is that really what the New Testament teaches, that one nation is going to replace Israel? The Puritans often referred to America as Israel or the promised land. And that's where the spirit of Christian nationalism began. But unfortunately, as I pointed out last week, they often used the notion that they were God's chosen nation as an excuse to exterminate the Native Americans. Like the Canaanites and the Amalekites who inhabited the promised land during Joshua's day, well, the Native Americans are now ripe for destruction. And last week, I quoted a 1689 sermon from the Reverend Cotton Mather, who was one of the most respected Puritan pastors, who called for nothing short of Indian annihilation. He actually called for the extermination of the Indians. Now, mercifully, not all Puritans agreed with Mather. After seeing hundreds of defenseless Christians, his own converts, mercilessly destroyed by the Puritan colonists, missionary John Eliot wrote to the Puritan authorities. And here's what he said. When we came, we declared to the world that the endeavor of the Indians' conversion, not their extermination was one great end of our enterprise in coming to the ends of the earth. My humble request is that you would follow Christ's design in this matter to promote the free passage of religion among them and not to destroy them, to send them away from the light of the gospel. They actually were sold into slavery down the Caribbean. To send them away from the light of the gospel, which Christ hath graciously given them unto a place, a state away of perpetual darkness, to the eternal ruin of their souls is to act contrary to the mind of Christ. To sell them away for slaves is to hinder the enlargement of Christ's kingdom. Now, Eliot really understood God's purpose for the present age is to enlarge his kingdom among every tribe and tongue and nation. Jesus never promised to build a single Christian nation but to claim a kingdom out of every tribe and tongue and nation. That's the mission of the church. And look at Jesus' statement in Matthew 24 and verse 14. Jesus said, This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That's Jesus' focus now, the word nations refers to every ethnicity and tribal group. But this is how Jesus envisions the future of his kingdom. Jesus does not see one nation. Rather, Jesus sees the gospel of his kingdom pressing its way into all nations. That's his mission, and that includes America. Now turn to Matthew 28. The words of the Great Commission are really quite familiar to us. But have we really thought about them in the context of Christian nationalism? 
Does Jesus ever command his followers to go build a Christian nation? No. Here's what he commands. Verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Friends, we are called not to build a nation we are called to disciple the nations. Now let me clarify, because I know you have a question. Am I saying that there's no role for Christian and Christians in politics? That's not what I'm saying. I believe that Christians should be involved in politics. I wish we had more Christians involved in politics. I am very grateful for Christians in positions of influence in Washington. I am grateful for the clear, the crystal clear salvation testimony of Senator Tim Scott. He spoke in chapel last semester, and it was just so incredibly moving to hear his testimony of salvation. I really believe that being a city on a hill means we don't go out and create one nation, but we shine our light in every vocation, in every place. We need Christians everywhere, permeating every vocation and every realm of society. But friends, if you believe in the Great Commission, and if in fact you lived in a Christian nation, you would have to leave, right? I mean, how could you possibly obey the Great Commission if you're surrounded by believers? You'd have to go somewhere else. And this was John Eliot's larger point. The Puritans wanted to create this shining city on a hill, a Christian commonwealth full of believers. That was their mission. We're going to go out here and build a society that's going to be full of Christians. Well, that experiment, noble as it was, turned into an ecclesiastical and political disaster. In the halfway covenant, the Puritans began admitting believers into their churches, I'm sorry, admitting people into their churches who were not even true believers. They didn't know what to do with these people who never embraced the faith. And here they are, they're supposed to be part of the Christian nation, and, but they're not embracing the faith. So we'll bring them sort of halfway into the church or sort of halfway in and halfway out. What does that mean? The halfway covenant? And in King Philip's war, Fought between the Puritans and the Indians at the end of the 17th century, a third, get this, a third of the Puritan population was wiped out, and roughly 75% of New England's Native American population, 75% exterminated during that war. That war, hardly known today, was exponentially more deadly than any war in American history, King Philip's War, far more deadly than any other war. It was fought between the Puritans and the Indians. And was fought over this issue of whether you can go out and build a Christian commonwealth. Well, what do, you, what do you do with unbelievers? What do you do with Native Americans around you who don't convert? Well, if you're not part of the Christian commonwealth, we have to exterminate you. It was a total disaster. So friends, let me give you four reasons why I think we have to be very careful to reject Christian nationalism. And I'm not doing so to discourage you on July 4th. Quite the opposite. I want to do so so that we can really encourage each other to be theologically informed, responsible citizens in this great country that that the Lord has given to us. 
First, when we embrace Christian nationalism, we often endorse or ignore, rather, ignore or endorse America's past sins. Take, for example, the issue of racism, which manifested itself both through black slavery and Native American genocide. If you just glamorize America's past as holy Christian, you will tend to downplay the problems of the past. I grew up in Colorado when I first came as a student to South Carolina in 1996. I ran into some very interesting people. I had barely arrived before I met several Christians who literally told me that slavery was the means by which God wanted Africans to be evangelized. Christians who told me this. Friends, that's the tortured logic of Christian nationalism. You just, you find a way to justify everything in the past. Friends, as Christians, we have to just speak truth to the nation. Yes, America was founded with a profound Christian influence, but America was also born in original sin. Slavery arrived before the pilgrims. So let's just keep our focus where Christ put it. Christians are not called to build a nation, but to be light in every nation. And that leads to a second truth. When you embrace Christian nationalism, you pressure Christians to endorse everything the nation does. America can never do any wrong. Every war started, every bomb dropped, every cause she endorses must somehow be good. But as Christians, our duty is never to embrace everything our nation does. Our duty is to call our nation to continual repentance. That is the duty of every Christian. And that is why the preachers of the First and Second Awakening were so influential. They called their fellow Americans to repentance. Friends, Israel was loved by God. Dearly loved by God. But God never endorsed everything Israel did. Her national prophets called her constantly to repentance. In fact, Israel had to be called to repentance from the moment the nation was born. God had no sooner delivered his law from the heights of Sinai above than the people were worshiping a golden calf in the valley below. Christian nationalism tends to view the whole period of American history from the pilgrims to the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the original Bill of Rights, as this kind of Christian golden age back there. But friends, there never was a golden age in America or Israel or in any nation We've all had our golden calves, every nation. And the golden age, friends, was lost in the Edenic Rebellion at the beginning of human history. And it will not be restored until the new creation. That's when you're finally going to get the Christian commonwealth. That's when you're finally going to have that beautiful city in a hill when New Jerusalem comes down to planet Earth. And until that time, Christians are called just to be salt and light in every nation. Thirdly, when you embrace Christian nationalism, every election becomes a choice between good and evil, God and Satan, Christ and Antichrist. And given those binary perspectives, it's really difficult for Christians to speak about evils in both parties. It's like, why do I have to side 100% with one side or the other? Can I just speak truth? And fourth, when you embrace Christian nationalism... You discourage the next generation. 
this I think is really critical. Christian nationalists just live in this perpetual state of misery and doom. We were once a Christian nation, they claim, and ever since we've just fallen down in the utter darkness. Well, do you know how young people respond to that messaging? It's all over, we've given up, the good old days are all in the past. You know how people respond to that? They just, they just totally reject it. Wouldn't it be better to simply tell the truth? Christians have always been called to resist the evils of this nation. And God has a long, long record of accomplishing extraordinary things through Christians in this nation. Think of Jeremiah Everts, a product of the Second Great Awakening, which swept to the campus of Yale through the preaching of Jonathan Edwards' grandson, Timothy Dwight. Edwards, or, or, Everts was a young man during those days and came under conviction and came to Christ. Well, Everts went on to become a stalwart evangelical champion of Indian rights and a constant thorn in the flesh to Andrew Jackson and his Indian removal policies. That's, that's Christianity. Teach your children to become Jeremiah Everts. Not to despair for a Christian golden age that never existed anyway. That's how you disciple the next generation. And I really believe that we love our country more, not less, by telling the truth. Patriotism does not blindly endorse everything a, Christian, a, a nation does. Patriotism does not accept a skewed view of history. Patriotism simply speaks truth to the nation. I know I'm going long, but would you turn to Romans 9? And let me just show you how patriotism or love for country is modeled by the Apostle Paul. I want us to be very positive in the end. I'm trying to be balanced, but I want to end very positively. The application of Romans 9 just struck me with incredible force when we were working through Romans. Now, one caveat, in Romans 9 and elsewhere, Paul speaks of Israel both as an ethnicity and as a nation. But the application is really the same. In verse 1, Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. Friends, those are words of astonishing and supreme love. Love for his own people. Now, Paul was called as a missionary to the Gentiles. But how often do we find Paul observing Jewish feasts and customs? Even when the new covenant no longer required them? Isn't that interesting? Why does Paul celebrate his Hebrew culture? How often do we find him returning home to Jerusalem? How often do we find him grateful for his Jewish upbringing? The apostle to the Gentiles maintained a surprising loyalty to his own people and to his own nation. And notice how Paul emphasizes his love three times. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Paul really emphasizes this. And Paul also calls both Christ and the Spirit as his witnesses Paul loves Israel. Now, of course, Paul condemned Israel. Paul condemned Israel's national sins. 
Nevertheless, when you read from Romans 9 through 11, you can't possibly conclude that Paul was somehow unpatriotic. He wishes himself a curse from Christ for the sake of his fellow Israelites. So here's the point. It is appropriate, entirely appropriate, to feel genuine love for your own tribe and native village and countrymen. Friends, I love our national anthem I have been to Fort McHenry several times. I've actually lost count. I love America's diverse culture. New Jerusalem is going to be diverse. I love America's great museums. I have been to Washington, D.C. and the Smithsonian Museum. I don't know how many times. I have in-laws that live up there, in case you're wondering. I go down there all the time. I love reading America's history. I am rereading Tyndall and Shy's classic two-volume set, now in its 10th edition and used by college professors all over the place. It's a great read. This last week, I began reading Simon Winchester, the man who united the states, America's explorers, inventors, eccentrics, and mavericks, and the creation of one nation indivisible. Great book so far. Never read it all. I've read primary sources going all the way back to the pilgrims. They're really delightful. Friends, I love America's beautiful landscapes and national parks. My boys have national park posters all over their room. They're really, really great. I like to go to all of them sometime. Probably won't have a chance before I die. I have been, I think, to 15 foreign countries, and I always love coming home to my own. And I'm grateful that our country has come a long way from the evil days of slavery and genocide and segregation. I condemn it. It was evil. But I do not go so far as to hate my country because of her past sins like so many are doing today. Paul never hated Israel because of her past national crimes. He never went so far as to hate his country. By the way, anyone remember the interview with Kobe Bryant in 2008 before the Summer Olympics in Beijing? Anyone remember that? I went back and found it last night. Kobe Bryant, I don't know why I brought this up. He gets this great interview before he plays for the, you know, the American basketball team. And he says he, he got his uniform out and put it on the bed and just stared at it. And such an honor, he said, to represent my country. It was so moving. Go Google that sometime. Not now. Kobe Bryant, 2008. It's a Chris Collinsworth interview. I, just, I, you know, I, I want to show that to all the Olympians before they go. All right? Watch this. All right? And stand for your flag. All right? Friends, we we don't have to go to an extreme that tells you all good citizens must hate their country. That's not Christianity. Paul loved Israel. Yes, he wept over Israel just as Jesus wept over his beloved Jerusalem. But Paul loved Israel and Jesus loved Israel. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, despite the evils of communism that invaded his native Russia, still loved his country. Solzhenitsyn was thrown into the gulag for some 11 years for speaking out against Stalin. And when Solzhenitsyn was finally exiled to America, American Christians profoundly misunderstood him. They thought, oh, he's going to be very critical of Russia. He's going to be on our side. What they didn't understand is that he loved his country. He hated what communism was doing, but he loved his country. You ought to. It is entirely appropriate for Chinese citizens to love China for Egyptians to love Egypt, for Mexicans to love Mexico. It is entirely appropriate for Americans to love their country and to seek its redemption. It is entirely appropriate to love people who look like you and speak your language and share your culture, not to the exclusion of everybody else, 
but it's entirely appropriate to love your people. And do you know why? Here's why. Because the king of kings loves all nations and tribes and tongues. If Jesus can love my nation and my tribe and my English tongue, well, then I can too. Thank you very much. Jesus, friends, has a redemptive interest in all the nations. And Revelation 21, I'll probably come back to this in a couple weeks, tells us the nations, get this, will bring into the new Jerusalem their glory and their honor. What does that mean? The word glory in this instance refers to the uniquenesses of a nation or a people or a culture. Don't buy into this unscriptural notion that a future one world government is going to obliterate all national distinctions. The Bible teaches no such thing. Rather, the gospel will go on redeeming the nations until the end, Matthew 24. And the glory and the honor of the nations will pour into that heavenly city, adorning the new earth, looking like a shining city on a hill. So friends, there is no question that Paul loved the Gentiles who were not part of his culture. And I love all cultures. But it's equally clear that Paul loved the Jews whose culture he shared To despise your own nation in the name of political correctness is sin. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you that you have placed us in this nation where we have so many freedoms and such a great heritage. And teach us, Lord, to look back on our past and to repent of our sin. And to look to the future, Lord, and to pray for the redemption and the restoration of our fellow men and women across this great nation.